Well, we're going to look at a topic that isn't all negative, but I say it isn't all negative because I'm about to say it is a cause of pain. I'm going to go ahead and guess that this isn't just true for me, but is also true for you. Sometimes as a minister, I have the opportunity to speak on a passage or a topic that just clicks, that you're like, yes, okay, awesome, uh, excited about this, this is good. Uh, a couple of weeks ago in Kintor, I got to speak on community and how that is a means of grace, as in a way that God blesses us is through church community. And man, that was just like, I was like, yes, this is great, I, I love this. So that's one, one thing that happens sometimes, but at other times, I get the chance to speak on something that is an area of personal struggle. It's an area that when I'm preaching, I'm like, man, I need to hear this. Like, I, I really, you know, God, would you please grow me in this? And both of those two scenarios have their unique benefits. There's things that I like about being in either of those spaces, but I express all of that to you so you know that from the outset, this sermon today fits into the second category. And maybe that's a good thing for you to hear because today is the last time that I will preach here as a member of the staff of this church. And I'd hate for you to ever have the picture of me or actually any pastor as being a person that has it all figured out, that understands the Christian life completely. A minister of the gospel is simply, for those of you who are Christians, a fellow Christian. And so you are brothers and sisters in Christ, your family members. We are, as ministers, yes, entrusted with a call to care or to shepherd. That's a word that we use sometimes. To exhort, to encourage, and yes, to be an example. But we face the same challenges. We face the same trials and the same struggles. We are not, as ministers, super-Christians, immune to the difficulties and challenges of life. So, this somewhat painful topic of self-control is one that I am absolutely needing to hear and think about with you today. Self-control seems to be, if you ask me, an inevitable area of struggle in life. We all, in our own ways, will struggle with self-control. And so to help us understand this problem, I'd like to use a statement today that we'll kind of start with, and then we'll let it grow throughout the, uh, the time that we have together. Hopefully, it just frames up our time a little bit. So let's start with this part of the statement. We know what we should do. Let me say that again. Listen to what we're saying. We, all of us, know what we should do. We are born with a sense of right and wrong. I believe that that's true. Some in the past have called this a moral compass. As in there's something in you that knows, okay, that's right and that's not so right. That's actually wrong. There's something in us as humans that has that kind of sense. Even people who would say, well... I don't know if there is a God or I don't believe in God. We see this happening in them. We see this sense of right and wrong even in them. For those of you who have people in your life like that, maybe co-workers or family members, friends, um, neighbors, 
you will see in those guys, you'll observe in them a morality where they can be seen celebrating good things. Like if something good happens in the world or in their lives, they'll be like, yes, yeah, that's good. Or if something bad happens, you'll find them raging against the injustice. And that's because we all as humans have this built-in sense of right and wrong. And for those of us with a connection to God, to His Word, and to His community, the church, we actually have a heightened sense of this sense of right and wrong. And that's because we have God's Word that spells out for us what is right and what is wrong. And we don't just have God's Word, we have the community, we have the church family that helps us to know and understand what is right and what is wrong. And we have the Holy Spirit who is here with us, and actually if you're a Christian, lives inside of you, who is prompting you, counseling you towards what is right and what is wrong, telling us what we should do. So we all know what we should do. But how is knowing what we should do a problem with a connection to self-control? Well, I'm going to let the Bible actually speak an answer to that and invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter (coughs) 7. Excuse me. Romans 7 is where I'm turning. And I'm going to, typically, I would give you a little bit of context. But I'll give you that in just a moment. We'll just read. Romans 7.15 is where we're turning. Romans 7. Verse 15 is where I'll be reading from. Okay, actually I'll give you a little bit of context. There's going to be a lot of do's in what I read about. Okay, you'll hear that word do lots of time. Don't get lost in it. Try and think and follow with what's been actually said, okay? Here we go, verse 15 through 20 is where we'll start. It says this, For I do not understand... My own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells Within me. Paul, who is writing here to the church in Rome, is a leader in the early church. He's this man who's been used powerfully by God. And I believe he's being inspired by God to write these words because God knows these words are actually really helpful and are going to go into the scriptures that we would have and be reading 2,000 years later. This is not just Paul writing to the Romans. This is God speaking to us. And there's some debate over these verses in particular about whether Paul is speaking of somebody who is not yet a Christian, who has not yet experienced the saving of Jesus, or if he is speaking of himself as a Christian with his continuing struggle. 
I personally believe, and many theologians would agree, that it's the latter, that Paul is speaking about himself. He's speaking about his ongoing struggle with sin, even after he's become a Christian. He's really speaking about the problem of self-control. You probably heard that coming out. Look at verse 15 again. It says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. To come back to the statement we were saying earlier, we could start to expand that out. We said, we know what we should do. And Paul's saying that, yeah, I know what I should do. The law helps me to know what I should do, as in God's word, his commands. But we can expand that out to say, we know what we should do, but we don't do it. We know what we should do, but we don't do it. We struggle to control ourselves. As I say that, I want you to think, do you identify with what I'm saying here? Do you identify with what Paul's talking about here? With these problems? And and I would venture a guess that if you have a pulse this morning, your answer is yes. You see, the problem's pervasive. We find in our lives, self-control is an issue all throughout life. I could actually just list thing after thing after thing this morning. Let me just give you a very small sampling of how this may play out. You're driving down the road. You look down and realize, oh, I'm speeding again. Self-control is an issue that we struggle with. We get up from a meal and realize, whoa, I just way over eight. Self-control is an issue. We look out the window and it's a beautiful day, but we're like, ah, go out and do that exercise tomorrow. Self-control. We think too much about something that we shouldn't, maybe a a, a jealous or envious thought, or we're fixated on something, or even we're lusting after something. Self-control. We stay up too late, or we're sleeping in too much. Self-control. We say something, it comes out of, our word, out of our mouth, and then we're like, oh, I wish I could pull that back. Self-control. We find ourselves doing something, and we walk away understanding that what we just did was wrong. Self-control. You guys see, this is pervasive. It's everywhere. We cannot easily escape. Self-control is something that is elusive to us. Why do we struggle? What causes us to do things that we know that we should not do. Well, if you go to verse 20, Paul spells it out. God spells it out for us. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Sin. Now, this is some murky waters here, so stay with me. Sin. Paul has sin in him. What is he speaking to? Well, some people have tried to explain this by using a term called remaining sin. And what that means is when we come to Christ and ask him for forgiveness, which that's what a Christian does, by the way. A Christian is somebody who has come to God and said, Hey, God, I realize that you are holy. And I realize that I'm sinful. You cannot be a Christian without having that thought. You have to have that thought. You realize there's a chasm between you and God. 
He is holy and perfect and you are sinful. There are things that you have thought, said and done that are offensive to the perfect and holy God. And so a Christian is someone who has come to God and said, I realize this gap. And I also realize that there's only one way for that gap to be mended, and that is through your son, Jesus. And so, God, I'm asking him to forgive me. I'm thanking you that he died on the cross, not because of anything he did that deserved that punishment, but because of my sins, the ones that I have committed and the ones that I will commit. That is, and that is how a Christian is made right with God. But God, in his wisdom has determined that when that happens, when that reconciling, when that person becomes a Christian, to not remove us as humans from planet Earth. He's determined to not suck us up into heaven and make us immediately perfect. No, we remain in this body that is corrupted by sin. And we also remain in a world that is corrupted by sin and evil. And this causes all sorts of problems for those of us who are in this already but not yet state. We are people who had already changed and yet we're not yet perfect. We're in this process we call sanctification of becoming more and more like Jesus. I read someone as I was reading on this this week who said it like this, sin dwells but no longer reigns in believers. Let me say that again. Sin dwells, but no longer reigns in believers. This sin and corruption can cause us to lose control. But that doesn't give us an out. I don't want you to hear verse 20 here and be like, is is Paul just saying, well, it was a sin that caused me to do it? We are responsible for our bodies. We are responsible for our choices. So we can't say, the sin made me do it. That's a little bit like saying, the dog ate my homework. Is that a phrase here? Do people say that? Okay, that's, I thought that was global. Uh, it's not helpful. And Paul understands that. You can actually see that he gets his responsibility in this if you read on. Look at verse 24 with me. This is Paul owning his own problems. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. As we read just that last verse, we can hear coming out in it the very real battle that we face. Look at the first part of verse 25. It says, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. Let's paraphrase that. I want to do the right thing. I know what it is and I want to do it. But then he goes on and says, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Let's paraphrase that. But when I look up, I find myself doing the wrong thing. I know what I should do, but I don't do it. This battle, this harsh reality in Romans 7, perhaps feels quite removed from the encouraging sound and the optimism of the fruit of the Spirit we were talking about earlier in Galatians chapter 5. If you just read those couple of verses in Galatians 5, which is, by the way, verse 22 and 23, that's where you find the nine fruit of the Spirit, they sound rather different. 
If you're listen to, listening to Romans 7, it sounds like the Christian life is like, oh man, there's this struggle with sin still because we're in these bodies and in this world that's broken by sin. But you listen to Galatians 5, and this is its description of the Christian life. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. To me, the picture of the Christian life sounds much lighter and more victorious. And in this lovely list of nine things, the last thing on the list is what? Self-control. What is self-control? We've used that word a lot. Let's just stop and think about this word for a a little while because it's not a normal word. It's actually a a hybrid word, if you want to put it like that, or a mashup. It's a hyphenated word. It's two words pushed together. And in a way, it really feels a little bit like an oxymoron. An oxymoron is a device in, the, in language where we take two seemingly contradictory things and push them together. And so when you think about it, self, control, those maybe don't feel like they really belong together. If you look up a Bible dictionary on this word in Galatians 5, what you'll find is this definition. Self-control is the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions. That's the Thayer's Bible Dictionary definition. Now you can imagine that the Bible, which is, by the way, often thought of as a book of morality. Some people don't think of it as much more than that. A book of rules and laws and morals. You would imagine maybe that you would find this term self-control written all over it. That, you know, thou shalt be self-controlled. That would be a phrase. But actually, you don't find it very often. In fact, in the English translation of the Bible, like the ESV, which I'm reading out of here, do you know how many times this term, self-control, shows up in the whole Bible? Eleven. That's it. One of them we've actually already read in Galatians 5. There's only ten more that you haven't read this morning. And I think that's kind of interesting. The concept is certainly very present of the importance of controlling self, but the term is used rather sparingly. I'll give you a couple of other places that it it comes up. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. I'll read it for you. It says this, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. I.e., if you have no self-control, you're done. Like, your walls are down, your defenses are done, anything can happen. It's not a good place to be. If you go to 2 Timothy chapter 1, here Paul is writing, again, being inspired by God, but writing to a guy that he's helping to instruct. And in verse 6 and 7, it says this, "For For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And this is for all of us. For God gave us, Christians, a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the spirit. It is not a work of man. It is not a work of the flesh. So here in this verse, in in 2 Timothy chapter 1, it tells us that God gives us, Christians, a spirit. And that's important. It's a gift. It's given to us. A spirit of power, 
love and self-control. Self-control is a fruit. It's a fruit of God's Spirit living inside of us. And we're not going to go into a whole message today on the Holy Spirit and how He works. But Christians, we believe, mysteriously, yes, but true, the Holy Spirit li- excuse me, lives inside of us. And if that is true, it's good for us to remember a couple of things about fruit and the Spirit. Fruit takes time to mature, develop, and ripen. It's not an overnight microwave process. There is time. There is toil involved in this. And speaking to that, there will be struggles along the way as fruit is grown. You speak to any gardener, which, by the way, is not me, but you speak to any gardener and they will have to toil. There will be struggles. There will be hard things along the way in the growth of fruit in the garden, much in the same way in our lives. And sin, like a disease, tends to eat away at this fruit. And that's what's being articulated, if we were to look back to Romans 7, in a very real way by Paul expressing his troubles. Some people, I think, read... I've had conversations with people about Romans 7 because some people find it very discouraging They find it flattening that Paul would say, you know, the very things I want to do, I don't do. But I actually read this and I don't find it discouraging at all. I find relief in the thought that one of the great church planters and starters, the great missionary Paul, struggled in this way. Just like I find relief in the thought that the great king of the Old Testament, David, had his problems. I don't celebrate their sin I celebrate the fact that God was able to use them in spite of their sin. So don't read Romans chapter 7 and be like, oh, no, this gives us hope. Romans 7 and Galatians 5 may sound, or at least the parts we've read today, may sound quite different, but they're actually not. Paul, towards the end of Romans 7, like we already read, says... Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That sounds pretty dire. That sounds pretty serious. But I want to point out something to you. If you skip from that, which is in verse 24 of chapter 7, down just a few words to Romans 8.1, what we find is some of the most epic words in Scripture. Yes, that is dark. Wretched man that I am, who will save me? But look at Romans 8, 1 with me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I say that and my hairs are standing up on the back of my head. That is a powerful, powerful and true promise. And Christians, we need to cling to that. And that's just the first sentence of Romans 8. The whole chapter is incredible. In fact, some theologians talk about Romans being this book that really pulls together the whole of Scripture in a way that's just incredible. And then they talk about how the pinnacle of the book of Romans is found in Romans 8. And you know why I'm pointing that out to you? Because it comes right after the struggles of Romans chapter 7. I think that's awesome that that's how God has created and crafted the scriptures. And this is where Romans 7 and 8 together 
and Galatians 5 actually sounds a lot alike. If you go back to Galatians 5 in verse 24, it says this, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And I read that to you because what I want you to see is that between Romans 7 and 8 and Galatians chapter 5, what they're both articulating is the battle of life. The Christian walk and life is not just an easy walk where you're going along strolling your way to heaven. No, it's a battle between the flesh and the spirit. It's a battle for self-control. And both passages speak to the key for victory. And the key is not work harder, impress God. What do you see in both passages? Jesus. Galatians 5 talks about Jesus being the one to whom we belong. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Romans 8 reminds us that those who are in Christ Jesus experience no condemnation. Jesus is the man of perfect self-control who paid for our lack of self-control so that we could be made right with him. And if all that's true, which it is, our only reasonable and right response is to seek to now live for him, surrendered to our our Savior and our King. Self-control along with the rest of the fruit of the Spirit is something that we should, yes, desire Self-control is a fruit that comes as a response, though, to God's grace, not as something that we produce to earn God's grace. Are you tracking with me? That's a really important distinction. And I say this understanding that a message on self-control as a fruit of the Spirit could very easily veer off the road into being a sermon that sounds a lot like moralism. And what I mean by that is, I don't want you to walk out of here hearing me, out of here today, hearing me say, try to grow more self control in your life. Work harder at it. God will be impressed by you being really self controlled. Self control in the way that God wants for us is a byproduct of His Spirit, just like all the fruit of the Spirit. It's fruit grown not just naturally, but actually supernaturally by the Spirit of God living in us. And that means it is a fruit from Him, not from us. There's a 19th century minister and church leader named J.C. Ryle. And he said a couple of centuries ago that morality, as in doing the right thing, cannot be called into being by laws and statutes. You cannot call self-control into being in your life by rules or trying harder. And so this is where I'd like to take us back to our statement. We have said that we know what we should do, but we don't do it. Let's finish that out by saying, yes, we know what we should do. We don't do it until God's Spirit does a work in us to change us. 
God's spirit is the key here. Not trying harder, but relying on him, being sensitive to him, allowing him to do his good work in our lives. Listening to his voice, praying for help, praying for grace, praying for his work in our lives. So where does all this leave us? Well, it leaves us in need of Jesus and his spirit to work in our lives. He is the answer to our struggles with self-control. And so a very good starting point, and one that I often articulate, but it's important to say is that if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you just know of Jesus as a good guy or the guy that's talked about in the Bible, but if He is not your Savior, if you haven't had that moment that we talked about earlier where you've said, yeah, God, you're here and I'm here, and this sin is separating us, if you haven't had that moment, that's where I want to encourage you to start. Do you know Him as your Savior? Is His spirit in you and growing fruit if you're not sure how to answer that question that's where you need to pause and reflect today and i'd be happy to have a chat with you i know that martin or john we'd love to talk to you or the person who brought you along today don't just kind of feel convicted and walk away address those feelings that's god's spirit at work on you if you do know jesus I have a couple of further questions for you. And these are ones that we're going to reflect on as we kind of close out our time here in just a few moments. The first question is this. In what area or areas do you struggle with self-control? Now, you may be like, well, I've got a long list, but what is the Holy Spirit prompting you to? Like even right now as I ask the question, what's the first thing or first couple of things that pop into your mind. The second question is pretty simple, but an important one. Will you bring that struggle or those struggles to God in prayer and ask His Spirit to bring you victory? Let me simplify. Will you pray about it? Think about where the areas of struggle are And will you, even in our response time, pray about it? Fruit grows by God's grace in God's timing. So let's look to Him and continue to look to Him as we seek to see the fruit of the Spirit, including the fruit of self-control, flourish in our lives. And may our desire to see that fruit grow come from a place of motivation not to be seen as being awesome by people around us or to impress ourselves, but by simply responding to God and His great grace and love to us. That's the right posture. God, You have been good to us, and so let us, in response, be open to Your work in our lives, open to Your prompting, open to the fruit that You want to grow in us. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that you who began a good work in us are the same God who will see that work through to completion. God, we thank you that we have your word. We thank you that 
The Christian life is described in a very real way to us in your word. Thank you that the struggles of these heroes of the faith that we look at remind us that there's hope for us as well. God, we don't celebrate their struggles, but we celebrate your victory. And God, even in our lives, we're praying that we would see victory in areas of struggle. And so, Lord, even today across this room, as people are reflecting on where do I struggle with self-control, may there be some real, very specific thoughts that your Holy Spirit would drop into our hearts and minds. And God, would we have the ability to just pray and hand those things over to you in these next moments? Help us to not just leave our time today without really bringing to you the things that need to be brought to you. We thank you that you are such a patient and loving God. We thank you for the ways that you deal with us. We don't deserve it. So as we pray these prayers, may there be a great sense of gratitude as well. Not of anxiety, not of worry, but of of just receiving your love. Thank you that you are a God of love. Thank you that you love us even with our struggles. Shape us more to look like Jesus. Amen.